large, I'm Leonard Lopate. One of Mao Zedong's best-known sayings is, everything under heaven is in utter chaos, the situation is excellent. Slavoj Zizek has borrowed that idea for the title of his new book, Heaven in Disorder, but it's clear from the first page that he doesn't think the current world situation is excellent. If anything, the pandemic, inequality, climate disaster, desperate refugees, and the mounting tensions of a new Cold War suggest that the motif of our time may be constant chaos. Slavoj Zizek is a Slovenian philosopher, a researcher in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Ljubljana, uh, fac uh, faculty of Arts and the International Director of the Burbeck Institute for the Humanities at the University of London. He's also a global eminent scholar at Kyung Hee University in Seoul and global distinguished professor of German at New York University. His book is published by OR Books and it brings him to our show today. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm very glad to be with you here oh. in this crazy, sad times. You cover so many topics in this book and draw upon such a wide variety of sources that it would be impossible for us to discuss all of it. But let's see how much we can get in. The, the book is full of paradoxes. Mao saw the disorder as a possibility for new beginnings, but I'm not sure today's catastrophes can be catalysts for progress. I unfortunately agree with you. And there is a subtle difference. I am not a Maoist. Mm -hmm. Mao said a disorder under heaven. As a, or, an orthodox communist, he still thought there is a heavenly order. Progress of history, we know where the history is moving, moving. But disorder is here. But since we communists know where the history is moving, we can use, exploit this disorder to achieve our goals. As Mao said at the extreme of this, look, First World War, big chaos, Soviet Union, first communist country. Second World War, even bigger chaos, half of the world is communist. Third World War, all of the world will be communist. I think today the heaven itself is in disorder. Globally, we don't have what I call, following some other theorists, cognitive mapping, a consistent uh, explanation of what goes on today. And what especially worries me is that even within countries, nation states, there is no heaven. By heaven, I mean simply for an efficient, actually functioning democracy. All sides had to follow, assume, admit some basic rules. Otherwise, we have a civil war, at least at the level of ideology. Well, how Look much today, at, yes, at United States, in my country, there is a civil war. Well, how much of your political thinking is shaped by the fact that you're Slovenian, uh, a country w that uh, was, uh, you know, borders on Italy and Austria, that, that affected it during uh, World War II, and of course it, then it was part of Yugoslavia, Tito's Yugoslavia, a kind of an unorthodox communist country, and then it was the first country to break away from 
Yugoslavia. So um, I'd imagine you've been hit by a wide range of political philosophies over the course of your life. Yes, but uh, you know what was so interesting for me here? That, uh, you know, uh, we never, we by we I mean, let me limit this, we, by we I mean intellectuals in Slovenia. From early 1960s, borders were completely open. Close to Italian border, ordinary people were going in the afternoon for a better cappuccino than in Slovenia to Italy and so on. So we knew how things in the West are, but since Yugoslavia was, as you said correctly, a special kind of socialism which pretended not to be the same as the Soviet bureaucratic uh, uh, communism, many people in the West idealized Yugoslavia as nonetheless a better socialism. We also didn't have that illusion. I think this was not my intelligence or, or, or whatever, but generally our advantage. For us, 1990 was not a big break. Nothing changed. If anything, things became worse. Let me not get lost in talking too much, but tell you a wonderful paradox. I have good memories of the last communist government from somewhere mid-80s till 1990. post Sorry? After Tito. Yeah, 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 yeah. After Tito, yes. From Tito died in 1980. Mm -hmm. uh, 1985, everybody saw the writing on the wall. The time of communism is limited. It will fall apart. So, in some countries, we Slovenes were relatively, relatively happy at that point. Uh, uh, communists tried to do their best. Precisely, they felt guilty because they knew that their reign is not, in democratic sense, legitimate. It was a point of freedom, with uh, an epoch of freedom with incredible paradoxes. Like, some of my friends were desperate. Like, wait a minute, communism will disintegrate, and where is my badge of honor? I want to be convinced to, uh, I don't know, some small... Uh, punishment, uh, half a year in prison, so that afterwards I will be able to proclaim myself a hero. So they attacked the party brutally, publicly, nothing happened. It was a good time. Then, what happened then is that, on the one hand, with so-called democracy, immediately, I wrote about it already in 1989, it was clear that since people expected from capitalism and democracy something that they will not get, basically, I think the expectations that people had from the fall of communism was, in a way, an idealized representation of socialism itself. They wanted a more just society, with, of course, free debate, but also better health care, social solidarity, and so on and so on. They didn't get that. And this opened up the space for ferocious nationalists. It was clear already in 1990 that, that 
the, let's call it, liberal democratic experiment will fail, and that the time of uh, ferocious nationalism will return. You write that, I'm quoting, Today, the situation is not one in which heaven is divided into two spheres, as was the case in the Cold War period when two global worldviews confronted each other. The divisions of heaven today appear increasingly drawn within each particular country. And how is that developed, for example, in the United States, where you say there is an ideological and political civil war between the alt-right and liberal democratic establishment? And also in the United Kingdom, where similar deep divisions were recently expressed in the opposition between the Brexiteers and the anti-Brexiteers. The situation is complex, but it always was complex. What worries me is that, insofar as I know the situation in the United States, I follow it, of course, that uh, now with Donald Trump and his followers, the so-called alt-right, this is no longer the same as the old division between Republicans and Democrats. Mm. It's clear that there is no reconciliation possible here because the basic vision of society is different. You cannot argue at some, at some level. And I'm a pessimist here. I don't believe in some global reconciliation. One side will have to win. And it's the same in my country, it's the same in what I call the new East European post-communist axis of evil, ironically, Slovenia, Hungary, Poland, and so on. And it's not just the question of ideology. I am a sensitive guy also in my daily life. And I notice to what extent then Donald Trump is not unique. We have the same phenomenon of incredible vulgarities, something which was still now limited to the private domain. After the public debate, you went to a pub or a bar and you spoke, at least men spoke in the usual vulgar way, how all this is now penetrating the public domain itself. This yes. means that... Uh, here I am. I define myself paradoxically as a moderately conservative communist. By this, I mean that here we uh, can see that something which is for me, now I will talk really as a conservative, the most precious part of every society, the complex set of explicit but also unwritten rules which regulate our interactions is seriously eroded. It's disintegrating. We simply don't know the rules. And I see even the political correct, so-called political correctness as a desperate attempt to impose new rules. I think this will fail. But what worries me here again is how today it's the liberal left which is more uh, uh, severe, prohibiting expression, and so on and so on. And what we get from the old right is a new openness, obscenity. You can be insulting, you can say whatever you want, and so on and so on. I consider this a very dangerous 
situation. You really think Maybe, that the alt-right is say, saying you could say whatever you want? I, I don't see that happening in this country. If anything, no, uh, uh, right no, now no, they're talk, no, no, they're talk, there's been talk about a civil war in the United States from some people in the alt-right. No, uh, by civil war, I don't mean at least not yet shooting and so on. But I mean a situation where the basic commonly accepted rules are disintegrating. Look at the last elections. Remember, I don't know how many years ago when Al Gore lost to uh, Bush, the younger. Even though he had gotten the majority of the vote. Yes, whatever the complaints about the injustice and so on and so on, once it was decided, all sides accepted it. This is not, this is no longer happening today. But I deeply agree with you, I would have to elaborate it more, that we are not dealing here with an authentic openness. No, we have vulgarity and so on, but you definitely cannot say whatever you want. Not only we have the, let's call it, left liberal politically correct limitations, which uh, expression did you use? Was it implicitly sexist or whatever? Also, this new alternative right is full of its own prohibitions. It's a false freedom and opening. Of course, if you want to see what is prohibited, just look at figures like Julian Assange and his colleagues. Assange was a victim of an incredible character assassination. And it's very interesting to ask ourselves why such an obsession with publish with sorry with punishing Assange. I think it's not just the secret data that he disclosed. I don't want to lose time now about him. But I would say that... Well, you've devoted he, a whole chapter to Julian Assange in this book. Yeah, but I now am even ready to go on. You know, let me develop briefly my point. I think that even concerning what Assange brought out into public, the secret documents, let's be frank, we didn't really learn anything new there. We all knew that, not in details, but generally. Yes, the state is doing some nasty things and so on and so on. But we were able to comfortably ignore it. Like, let's not talk about it. I publicly condemn it, but secretly, of course, somebody has to do the dirty things. When Assange brought this out, he, as it were, put up into the open air. We had to admit it was an embarrassment. We cannot tolerate it. Uh, second thing, I think what Assange is really aware of, his true novelty is not in the data. He was the first to make clear what today almost everybody knows, the new modes of digital control. How? Everything that we do is registered and so on and so on. That's why I find a little bit ridiculous when libertarians complain that lockdown, uh, mandatory vaccination and so on are 
totalitarian limitation of our freedom and so on. No, I'm pro-vaccination. I think this is a very bad example. Already prior to uh, the pandemic, our lives were much more controlled with all the digital data gathered with uh, uh, big corporations, the state, and so on and so on. Just remember all those disclosures about the Pegasus program and so on and so on. And uh, the de- this is, for me, the lesson of Assange. It's not... <laughs> sorry. It's no longer the old totalitarian oppression where, you know, you look around, you see somebody following you and so on, this obvious oppression. No, it's an unfreedom which we basically experience as freedom. You are free, you, you, uh, you go around on the web, you do whatever you want there and so on and so on. There you're already controlled and manipulated. That's why. Although I still have some doubts theoretically about this notion of corporate neo-feudalism, I do think that think that figures which emerge today as, as it were, public celebrities, Bill Gates, Elon Musk, uh, uh, Zuckerberg, and so on and so on, they resemble more feudal masters. Why? They are not capitalists in the old sense, working for profit. For us to talk, to interact, to buy things and so on, we have to interact in certain commons, common shared space, which is more or less controlled by them. We are paying rent to them. And that's why, for me, what I, for example, fear much more than, than the new uh, populist alternate right is Zuckerberg, his vision of metaverse. He proposes a new social space, kind of a gentrified, uh, cleansed of all its uh, real-life uh, dirty aspects and so on, in which we will move smoothly, but the space will be opened sorry, will be owned and sustained by him. For me, Zuckerberg Manifesto for Meta is a neo-feudal manifest. I have to do a little station break here and tell people that my guest is Slavoj Zizek, whose latest book is Heaven in Disorder. It is published by OR Books, and this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Um, We are streaming live at WBAI.org. You write that in Western and Eastern Europe, there are signs of a long-term rearrangement of the political space that until recently, two main parties addressed the entire (coughs) electoral body, right-of-center parties like the Christian Democrats and left-of-center parties, socialists and social democrats, with smaller parties addressing a narrow electorate, ecologists, neo-fascists, et cetera. So are the, the spaces for common ground diminishing? Yeah, as I, yes, because as I write, the new big opposition that is emerging now is the opposition between, let's call it liberal democratic center and the new populist right. 
And uh, it's very interesting how flexible open this new liberal center is. For example, do you know that in the elections, which will be now in a month or two in Hungary, the entire opposition have chosen, I forgot his name, it's unpronounceable for me, a, a candidate, even the left supported him, supports him, who is an old conservative Catholic, an honest conservative, who simply says Orban, the boss of Hungary, and his party, they, this is a criminal organization, they are non-Christian, and so on, and so on. Which is why one of the hopes I see, paradoxically, is a pact between the new left and what I naively call honest conservatives. I think, now I'm just provoking, but I mean it seriously. I think that the left should drop this obsession with, you know, marginals, this type of sexual minority, that type, are they included in, and so on and so on. The left should shamelessly say no, in view of, you remember, attack on the Congress, the savagery of new populist right, we are the moral majority. We speak for ordinary people. For example, that's almost my mantra. When I hear from conservatives that uh, the left is destroying our, uh, our family life, uh, family values, I would say, no, it's contemporary capitalism, which is destroying it much more. I think the left should even appropriate this topic, the topics which matter a lot even to ordinary, to so-called ordinary people. Stable security, health care, uh, 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 moral certitude, everyday life, decency, and so on. And I'm not dreaming here. I have friends all around the world who participate in radical movements, and from Chile to Turkey, they told me that the basic demand of protesters is always in Chile dignidad, dignity. It's a very simple moral demand. This is where I see a prospect. Are the authoritarian strains we've seen in this country recently anything new or just more overt? And has there been a growing anti-immigrant populism around the world? Or is that something that never really went away? Uh, here, we enter a much more problematic domain. You know why? Because here I adopted a position which brought me many enemies, even from the left. I think we should avoid this trap of, okay, there are immigrants, people who want to come to our country, from Mexico to United States, even here, Slovenia is on the edge all the time. Well, we're Refugees. seeing that in England with Brexit, and we're seeing that in many European countries as well, where uh, there are all yes, sorts of I tension on the borders. I think that we should break out of this frame where... The basic problem is refugees are there. Will we accept them or not? 
we should move. It's a question of survival for all of us. One level deeper back. Why are there refugees? We should change the entire geopolitical situation so that there will not be refugees. The solution, sorry, is not that, I don't know, 10 million people come to Western Europe and then what? Then the true poor will still remain in Afghanistan, Iraq, and so on. I read a very good analysis, which uh, shows, at least concerning Europe, that uh, to be a refugee, to come from, let's say, Afghanistan to Europe, you need money, you have to bribe all the uh, people who are organizing the smuggling and so on. It's, it's either criminals or middle, upper middle class who are the refugees. The truly poor people remain there. I think that this conflict, refugees, immigrants, yes or no, is a false conflict imposed on us, ordinary people, by those in power, establishment, let's call it, who then can play this game of, uh, you see, ordinary people are also racists and so on and so on. I don't condemn ordinary people for sometimes for being afraid of immigrants. This is a clash of different ways of life and so on and so on. But unfortunately, this is a prohibited topic for most of the left today. Well, most of the anti-immigrant populist parties are on their fringes, uh, including include racist neo-fascist groups. Yes, but at the same time, why are they becoming so powerful? Because I think they openly address problems which this upper middle class, abstractly multicultural left ignores. This is what, this is what bothers me. This turn from, I would say already from 1970s, 80s, this turn of the left towards cultural topic, uh, racism, sexism, and all that. Yes, this is very important. I fully support Black Lives Matter, for example, and so on and so on. Well, let me still... interrupt for just a second, but it's ironic that we had all sorts of anti-immigration policies in this country, especially anti-Asian immigration, and it was a conservative Republican, Richard Nixon, who changed that. So, oh, it, it, Of course, and the, the explanation is a very simple one, because uh, even not only Reagan, Bush also, Bush legalized the status for a, of, for a couple of years of a couple of million or, 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 of uh, Latino immigrants. Mm -hmm. It's simply the strategy of the capital. Everybody knows this. You allow poor immigrants, more pressure on the workers, and so on and so on, all that. I mean, uh, this, but uh, uh, of course I have mega sympathy for immigrants, but don't you think that we should move there, not by military intervention, but we should think about how we in the West, with our interventions, cause the waves of immigrants. We in Europe, we see it clearly without the occupation of Iraq and without the mess in Syria. 
these new waves of immigrants which have been much smaller and so on and so on. We have to change things more radically. I always distrust politics which moves from these real issues, international exploitation, neo-colonial forms and so on, to morality, to immigrants, how many of them can we get and so on and so on. No, let's work for a society where we will not have this kind of desperate immigrants. This is crucial. It's not kind of a moral dream. If we don't do this, you will see, we will have in 10 years neo-populists, racist neo-populists in power all around Europe. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. get back to my conversation with Slavoj Zizek about his uh, new book, Heaven in Disorder. I'd like to let my listeners know that anyone who signs up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a one-time contribution of $75 or more will receive a free copy of the book we're discussing. Um, so if you'd like a copy of Heaven in Disorder by Slavoj Zizek, uh, give us a call. Uh, the number is... Uh, 212-209-2950 called during today's show, or you can go online to give to WBAI.org. But please allow six to eight weeks for delivery. Again, that's give to WBAI.org, or you can call 212-209-2950. And don't forget to make that $75 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And thank you so much. Um, you you have a lot of different things in this book. You address the impact of demonstrations in Hong Kong and their possible connection to demonstrations in other parts of the world. In mid-October 2019, didn't Chinese media promote the claim that demonstrations in Europe and South America are the direct result of Western tolerance of Hong Kong unrest? I'm so glad you have chosen that topic because first this brings us to China mm -hmm. and uh, second, because this, what you mentioned now, I don't agree with this, Jack. But uh, let me, I talk too much. Let me be as, as precise as possible. I think that on the one hand, we often had in places like Ukraine, Belarus and others, what we arrogant Western Europeans like to call in German, the term is Nachholende, catch up revolutions. They just want to become like us. But I think the unrest in Spain, there were in France, in other countries, are no longer attempts to catch up with the full, fully developed liberal democracy. They, they, uh, and it's a very dangerous situation because they this protests uh, uh, give voice to some dissatisfaction with our 
the way it functions today, our liberal democracy itself, liberal democratic capitalism and so on, without, of course, at this moment, any clear vision how to move forward. This is what makes me sad. When you have a gap between dissatisfaction among the population and the political space, so that this dissatisfaction cannot be translated into the uh, space of political representation. Look, at least in Europe, at the, at the ultimate example, Podemos in Spain. A couple of years ago, Podemos was an incredible mobilization of ordinary people, hundreds of thousands, demonstrations, and so on and so on. Then what happened is that they become a political party and now they are part of government with kind of a moderate social democratic orientation, even eclipsed a little bit by socialists and so on and so on. And I quote another example of this gap. I remember when there were the last elections which Tony Blair just won by a couple of percent, I remember two weeks before the elections, I watched there in London on TV some, some show where they elected with hundreds of thousands of voices the most pop, unpopular person in the United Kingdom, the most hated person. It was Tony Blair. <laughs> Two weeks later, he won the elections. Yeah. This is, for me, a very dangerous moment. This distrust of ordinary people in the political process, on the one hand, this may give rise to new emancipatory movement. On the other hand, it's always a breeding ground for authoritarian, fascist, and so on tendencies. But back to Hong Kong and so on. And, and, the, and the confusion of China, because you write that the recent Chinese campaign against big corporations and the opening of a new stock exchange yes. in Beijing dedicated to promotion of small firms can also be seen as moves against neo-feudal corporatism as attempts to bring back normal capitalism. The word capitalism becomes so, so confusing. So a yes. strong communist regime is working to keep capitalism alive against the threat of neo-feudal corporate post-capitalism? Yeah, that's the, that's the cruel irony. And you know, my, my opinion on China here is very distinguished. What is happening now in China is not simply oh, the Communist Party wants to take all the power again. No. They, their diagnosis was correct. They became afraid of these mega corporations, which are becoming too big to fail and, uh, and so on and so on. But on the other hand, of course, the way they are doing it worries me. Now, how do I look upon China? On the one hand, uh, I see very dark signs there. Because I have friends there, I communicate with them anonymously from fake emails because they are afraid, of course, to come into open. You know, which is the biggest uh, movie blockbuster hit of all times in China. It was released earlier this year. Battle at the Lake of Chongdong. It's a mega hit. It earned almost $1 billion in China itself. Wow. It's a celebration of China's intervention into the Korean War, pushing the Americans back. But uh, this just connect this with the fact that, 
like a strange friend in China who informed me that in their military journals, this ideological military for broader social questions, there is again and again the idea that United States were intelligent enough to test their army all the time in small battles like Iraq, Afghanistan, while from 40 years ago or when failed intervention in Vietnam, the Chinese army is not tested. So they need to have a real war. Then another ominous sign, it, it made me, put me really into a panic. You know that, didn't people notice this, that about two months ago, I think, the Chinese authorities told people in case of big perturbances, they advised all families, ordinary people, to, 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 to buy, to acquire stocks of food in their house for at least two months. <laughs> so people are expecting war now. And of course, there is a further prospect of horror that this war, we are talking, of course, about occupying Taiwan, will be linked with Russian offensive in Ukraine. But I'm not simply blaming them. Because on the other hand, you know, uh, this big campaign against Huawei and Chinese digital media, there is another aspect to it. United States have the monopoly on digital software and and hardware. They're doing it. And they are simply afraid that China will become, uh, it is already a serious competitor. It's the same with Russia. I'm totally against Putin. But uh, remember that the West also broke the deal in Yeltsin years. There was a deal that uh, uh, Soviet Union can fall apart, on, but, and on, but on condition that these new states, Ukraine, Belarus, and so on, will not become members of NATO. So both sides are pushing towards a new war. Well, I don't think this is just a fiction. I'm afraid of it. I'm just confused by all of the, the different meanings given to words like capitalism or 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 neoconservatism. Hasn't Wang Huning, a leading ideologue of the Chinese Communist Party, designated himself as a neoconservative? So what does neoconservative mean today? It means, I would define them in this way, neoconservative is not the same as Trumpian populists. Neoconservatives are, many of them are intelligent people. They see the destructive social consequences on the left and on the right uh, of unbridled liberal capitalism. And, but they don't want to, of course, to change the social order, capitalism itself. So what they are desperately trying to do is resuscitating old traditional ideologies not ideologies in the abstract sense just, but ideologies in the sense of values of our everyday life, social solidarity, sacrifice for the community, and so on and so on, to prevent this social explosion of individualism, society disappearing into different tribes, each with its own rule, and so on and so on. This, I think, uh, 
is how China tries to answer a real crisis. And I think, again, the diagnosis is a correct one. Wang Huning is a very interesting guy. Hmm. He visited America three decades ago and saw this potentially destructive aspect of American unbridled individualism. But unfortunately, I don't think that the solution they offer, the new authoritarianism, can work. Because it's a contradictory project, my God. They want to establish sta a stable Confucian order, but they want to do it in an ultra-modern authoritarian way. So back to your, then I will finish. Uh, a, a remark, very accurate, how, what was the message of China when they said Western unrests are originate in Hong Kong? Hong Kong. What shocked me is that beneath all the revolutionary rhetoric and so on, Chinese authorities spoke from the position of a shared complicity, solidarity of those in power. Their message to the West was not you are dirty imperialist, but listen, you, you promote disorder here in Hong Kong, you will see it will happen to you also. So it's hmm. the message is let's work together so that there will not be social unrest, too many protests and so on and so on. I think China is effectively today uh, uh, a neoconservative country. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Slavoj Zizek, whose latest book is Heaven in Disorder, published by OR Books. Well, uh, you, you write, I can, we can't get to everything, but you write about protests in South America, for example, in Bolivia, uh, Chile, and Venezuela. But... Um, I, I was curious about something you pointed out. Well, a couple of things. Um, the, the Paris Commune was 150 years ago, but when yeah. Zhou Enlai, then the Chinese prime minister, was in Geneva in 1953 for peace negotiations to end the Korean War, a French journalist asked him what he thought of the French Revolution, and Zhou replied, it's still too early to tell. He was right, because it was... Stroke of a genius. You know why? Because wasn't it that it became clear only the deeper significance of French Revolution with the disintegration of most of the communist regime in 1989, exactly 200 years later, and that's the battle today. Many, even liberals, conservatives claim this whole epoch was one big blind alley, a mistake. So he is right. The battle is still going on. Or as I like to quote my, I like conservatives, my favorite English poet, T.S. Eliot, he says that every new event, he speaks about poetry, I would also talk about politics, also changed the entire past, not in the sense of actually changing it, but in the sense of throwing it, making it visible into a new light, and so on, and so on. And that's why, now, if I may briefly explain so that people will not think I'm totally crazy, why do I 
provocatively call myself a communist. Yes, your Listen. last chapter is, is headed, Why I Am Still a Communist, although yeah. you say that you're the first to admit that the clear. communist dream of the 20th century is over. Uh, Absolutely. And, and, and not only it's over precisely by today's criteria, if we look at, uh, for example, ecological consequences, the true nightmare are some parts of the Soviet Union, large domains which are even now totally non-inhabitable, if you look for ecological catastrophes. But I'm saying something very simple. Look at this last wave, the heat last summer, now all the storms, the Glasgow conference. What are they saying there? I, uh, uh, or even look at the pandemic. Uh, when this new virus, uh, Omicron, exploded, this we read in all official media that the West, the developed West, made here three catastrophic mistakes. And now Omicron is returning to us. First, and it's really sad, it's happening in European countries, uh, 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 states uh, gathered so many vaccines that their date of use has passed and they are destroying them. Instead of properly for free when it was still time giving them to third world state. So international cooperation, second point, didn't work. There was no solidarity, not even in Europe. The other big mistake was uh, there, should be, uh, uh, there should be no license. No copyright, how should I put it? Every country can use the formulas to produce vaccines and so on and so on. But these are, for me, elementary, what I call communist measures. Or look at the global warming. I don't call it, you can call it not communism, but isn't it evident that we clear need a large-scale international cooperation? Because... I read wonderful analysis precisely, do you remember, of that nightmare? Why? Because I love that part of United States and Canada. Portland is, for me, the nicest city in the United States because it has the greatest bookstore. That's another story. I'll say uh, Vancouver. Yeah, Vancouver and so on. Uh, you remember that terrible heat, almost 50 degrees uh, uh, Celsius last summer? But this was not something that happened there, I mean, because of local reasons. It is clearly a result of a global disturbance. So it's obvious that the only way to confront future catastrophes of global warming is some kind of a much more extensive global cooperation, also at the level of movements or of Populations, global warming means tens, hundreds of millions of people will have to be moved in next decades. How to do this? There will have to be cooperation concerning food and so on. This is what I call communism, not, oh my God, God forbid, a new communist party will take over. No, we should precisely, here my neoconservative aspect returns, we should learn to do it in a different way. 
we we have not, we have very little time left, and obviously we're not we're not going to get to some of the things yeah. that you discuss, like uh, the situation in South America, in in a, in the net last minute or. Uh, uh, why was the drone attack on Saudi Arabia really a game changer? Another uh, fascinating chapter yeah. that you've written. But just uh, in a minute or so, can you talk about the chapter you in which you address President Biden's claim that Vladimir Putin lacks soul? Uh, people should read closely that text of mine. Uh -huh. Because I'm definitely my point is not to defend Putin there. My point is that uh, uh, this whole debate of psychologizing political oppositions and so on and so on is false. It's clear what Biden meant that Putin has no moral scruples and so on, whatever and so on. He has but no, he has no think, sense of history. He claims that the, 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 the greatest catastrophe of the 20th century was the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union, and that ignores uh, all sorts of things, pandemics, World War I, depression, worldwide depression, it, it, World no, War II. Here, of course, Putin, what he's saying is crazy. Because, you know, uh, no, I'm not even talking as a leftist, but as an honest historian. Wouldn't you agree that the true catastrophe was, how do you call it, the Great War, the First World War. Yeah. Everything followed from that. Yes. Without World War I, there would have been no fascism, no Bolshevik revolution, and so on and so on. And here you cannot put the blame on any non-European or crazy lunatic leftist. It was a pure result of the, sorry to use this jargonic term, of 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 contradictions of Western imperialism. Everything came, even the second came out of that, even the Second World War. You know who was a true genius here? Friedrich Engels, the partner of Marx. You know what he wrote in 1880? He predicted First World War, and then he said if Germany loses, probably 20 years later, it will try to take revenge, and there will be another world war. I have to leave this it there, where, unfortunately. Uh, in, two, yes, in 2012... We are, we are now, that's my fear, we are now in a similar situation. Uh, uh, we had the last half a century, there were wars, tensions, but basically it was an incredible progress. I, as a, some kind of communist, I'm saying... Did ever in the history of humanity, average people live such a good, relatively free life as they did in the golden era of West European welfare state? I have to leave that it there. Unfortunately, uh, uh, my guest has been Slavoj Žižek. His uh, latest book, Heaven in Disorders, published by OR Books in 2012, Foreign Policy listed him on its list of top 100 global thinkers, calling him a celebrity, celebrity philosopher. Thank you so much for being on our show today. I'm very grateful to you to make a little bit propaganda for this <laughs> book, because I hope you saw that it's not a cheap dogmatic book. Like, I'm open to everything. It's yeah. just curiosity. I try to understand what's going on. 
And I, I'm sure our audience will be fascinated reading it as well. Thank you again. That brings us to the end of today's show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access any of our over 500 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org and on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at WBAI.org. WBAI finds itself in a very difficult position because of the pandemic, so if you value the kind of informative full-hour deep dives into one subject that we bring you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., like the one we just heard, please go online right now to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950. That's online, give to WBAI.org. On the phone, 212-209-2950. Please do it right now to play your part in keeping community radio alive in New York. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a one-time contribution of $75 or more in the name of Leonard Lopez at large right now will receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Heaven is Disorder, by my guest, Slavoj Cicek. But whatever level you're comfortable donating at, the important thing is that you step up and show your support for Leonard Lopez at large and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. Remember, WBAI is the only station on New York Radio that's 100% listener-sponsored. So there, uh, so please play your part with a tax-deductible contribution. And then there's another thing to consider right now. WBAI has had to institute an emergency tower fund drive to pay the back rent on our broadcast tower. And without that tower, we can't stay on the air. So I hope that you'll go to WBAI's website, wbai.org, to find a link to the Power Fund donation page, or you can call 212-209-2950 to make a, a Tower Fund donation. Again, that number, 212-209-2950. And remember, everything, any, any support you give us is tax deductible, but WBAI is the only station on the New York radio dial that uh, is 100% supported by our listeners. We need you to show your support. We can't do it without you. And um, we are definitely free speech radio. Uh, nobody tells us what to say here. And that's because we don't have to worry about getting any sponsors angry or any foundations angry. We just rely 100% on one donation after another. And we hope that if you like the book that you've been hearing about, Heaven and Disorder, you will make a contribution of $75 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate right now and become a member of WBAI.org. You can also become a sustaining member to the tune of $10 a month, $15 a month, $20 a month, whatever you're comfortable with. Again, the number one more time, 212-209-2950 or go online to WBAI.org. We're off tomorrow, but we hope you can join us again for Wednesday's show when Donald Cohen, the founder of the Public Interest and National Research and Policy Center, will discuss his new book, The Privatization of Everything, How the Plunder of Public Goods Transformed America and How We Can Fight Back. We'll see you then.